Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So this is the very late Ask Me Anything episode three, where I respond to the questions that you sent me. And given how much time has passed since the last AMA, which was September last year, there's been a pretty big choice of questions from which to choose from. So I've tried to select a a few just to cover a range of different topics. Before we start, I just wanted to signpost the upcoming qualitative research series of podcasts. And as I said in the last episode with Karimi Masuto, that I'm compelled to explore the philosophical and theoretical sides of clinical practice and research. And as such, I'm going to do a series of podcasts on qualitative research. And this qualitative series will aim to do the impossible, which is to both introduce qualitative research to clinicians and researchers that may not be familiar with the methodologies, but also offer something to those individuals who are already engaging with qualitative research and want to learn a little bit more about the underpinning theory, philosophy and associated methods. So there'll be more general episodes on qualitative research to explore pain and the lived experience of pain and healthcare, but also episodes diving into specific methodologies such as grounded theory, phenomenology, critical theory or discourse analysis. And during these conversations, I'll be doing my very best to locate and route these conversations into clinical practice and evidence-based healthcare and try to emphasize the value that these heterogeneic family of approaches to quality research offer to real-world clinical practice and the care of people whilst at the same time touching on the peculiarities and particularities of the different qualitative approaches. So this is what I meant by the potential impossibility of the mission to both be superficial and deep at the same time. Nonetheless, I'll do my best and I hope that value is found in the conversations by someone somewhere. So I'm starting these episodes in the next few weeks and they should begin to land towards May and see us through the summer. So keep a lookout and make sure you hit subscribe on your podcast platform so not to miss them when they land. So the first question. I would love to hear your thoughts on the need for still having three evidence-facing musculoskeletal professions. Should we drop the labels and focus on clinical competency or does each profession have something unique that it brings to the table? And so I imagine this question is in reference to the big three MSK professions, at least in Europe and the UK and Australasia, osteopathy, physiotherapy and chiropractic, and whether or not there's value in having three different professions. So I've talked a bit about professional identity in my previous AMAs, and I also touched on the topic with Dave Nichols in our episode 21, which remains the most downloaded episode as far as I'm aware, saying the unsayable and thinking the unthinkable. And I'm not sure, I'm still sitting slightly on the fence, so 
I suppose the simple argument would go something like, if all the professions are utilising the same sorts of evidence and theoretical frameworks to shape their clinical practice, then those professional distinctions become very much blurred, which is where we are at the moment. I think the challenge comes that, particularly with osteopathy and chiropractic, there is such a deep-rooted sense of tradition and pseudo-philosophy which underpins much of practice and identity that to scrub that all out and to start with a contemporary theory of practice of which all MSK professionals subscribe to is unrealistic. And I suppose the questions would be, if we were to create a new profession which had shared values, shared theory and shared practices, what would we lose? Is there something within physiotherapy or something within chiropractic or osteopathy, something hidden away in the in the professional philosophy or theory which are currently not being met? My sense is probably not, but I don't know. You know, there may be a perspective that the substantive theory of these professions might offer clinical practice some kind of leverage on clinical practice which we don't currently have through the I want to say the mainstream theories or frameworks that we're currently using and I'm speaking about general principles of care such as something that sounds like or looks like the biopsychosocial model or even an activism or theories of person-centered care or even dispositionism is there something which these theories don't currently contain, but is embedded and hidden away in some of the old books. So, so I think the first question is, is there any risk, is there any harm? Or rather, I think the first question is, is there any risk in losing something by having a single generic MSK profession? And I suppose the other question is, to what extent would it serve the patient best to have this flat generic MSK landscape? So whilst it's cumbersome and awkward and complicated to have three professions that by and large kind of look and sound the same, and it's a, it's a regulatory burden, of course, is it the case that by having those professions, that professional variance or those different professions, that it offers some kind of choice to patients that they're able to see in stereotypical form what each profession has to offer, even though in reality, those practitioners don't meet those stereotypes. So it begins to break down that professional choice for patients, that if they want a particular intervention or approach, they'll see a particular, a particular professional, even if in reality, that professional doesn't treat them or take the approach that the stereotype would suggest. So it's tricky. I think you, know, you can see the value in having a single profession which shares values, shares evidence, and is unified. So I see that's an idealistic view. Practically, there are so many professionals within those different disciplines which identify so strongly with that professional theory and ideology that they embody it. 
that they live and breathe the philosophy and aren't prepared to sacrifice or compromise any bit of it for the sake of a more meta-theory of practice, which would unify, unify practitioners to form a single profession. I think also that professional identity does offer some sense of fulfilment on the part of the clinician, that belonging to a community, that belonging to a group, that social validation that comes with being part of a group provides some sense of fulfilment for the clinician, which might well carry over to the patient. But as Dave Nichols asked the question in our podcast, if it was in the public interest to dismantle osteopathy or physiotherapy or chiropractic, would you do it? And I think that question gets to the where the priority of the perseverance of these professions. Is it purely self-serving to have these different professions with different ideologies and different approaches? Is it purely to preserve the good name of osteopathy, chiropractic and physiotherapy that these distinctions or the distinctive philosophy is emphasised? But I suppose the important thing is that we don't let these professional theories and philosophies get in the way of better methods and frameworks to help people who are experiencing pain and suffering. So they, they might well be just harmless cloaks of identity which just give some satisfaction to the individual and some shape to the landscape of MSK care. That's fine. If it is the case that these identities and underpinning theories are shields or barriers to taking on new and better frameworks, then they do become a problem. And we'd have to ask ourselves, if we were going to flatten and remove these professional labels, what value, what benefit would that be to the, to the patient and society? Next question. What's been your most influential non-therapy book? I'm not really sure how to define non-therapy related, given the complexity of clinical practice and the range of different knowledge forms that, that contact clinical practice and our decision making. It could be said that all forms of knowledge and the books in which this knowledge is contained have value to therapy. But... I've really enjoyed books around sociology and philosophy, so books such as Berger and Luckman's The Social Construction of Reality to make me question or make me think critically about those taken-for-granted assumptions which are part of clinical practice and professional practice. I've really enjoyed books around qualitative research really because it hones that curiosity that is so crucial to critically reflexive practice and questioning one's assumptions, beliefs, knowledge. And I think that has real value in clinical practice for me, being humble about knowledge, that epistemological humility, which I think Matthew Lowe and perhaps Roger Carey talked about. And... Also, in reading some of the the qualitative work and doing some of the qualitative research that I do, that the position you adopt as a researcher in both the research field 
and also toward your participants, meaning that your position is one of participatory, that you're constructing knowledge, that your own views and bias and values will infiltrate the research setting and lead to a construction of data in the case of research. So therefore, once you acknowledge that data is a co-construction, you've got to be interested in both what you're bringing to that construction, but also what the participant is bringing to that construction. And that means really getting an understanding of their position, their meaning, how that meaning arises, what those experiences are, and what they're bringing to that construction. And so moving that into the clinical field, adopting a similar position with patients, understanding their position, going beyond that surface level conversation and behaviour to wanting to be curious about the underlying meanings and their position and their relationship with themselves, their body, their pain, and also ultimately the relationship that they have with me. And it's often said that one of the crucial aspects of a good qualitative study is that researcher-participant relationship, that to ask participants to disclose in detail aspects of their lives, their experiences, which are often troubling if they're related to health or illness or pain, to construct rich data, there has to be a relationship there which is trusting and respectful and power is shared to provide a space for participants to share those experiences. So moving that over to clinical practice, I'd want a similar relationship with my patients. They've got to trust me that I won't judge them, that I won't giggle when they say something silly about what they think is causing their back pain or that they spent a gazillion pounds with a previous clinician receiving treatment for an imagined dysfunction. So that respectful atmosphere which shapes the relationship and provides a space for them to share these, to share their story with me and for me to contribute to that sharing, that's crucial to get a good, rich case history or story from the patient, which, as the course health guys have talked about, has causal power that there are there is information in that narrative which will tell you something about why this individual is where they are and potentially what you should do about it in relation to care and treatment. Yeah, moreover, those skills in in critically reflecting on your position as a researcher carries over with clinical practice where you're aware of your position, your bias, how you might be influencing the situation and you can begin to mitigate or offset some of that and at least be aware of of where you're standing. So I've kind of begin to move into my qualitative research series here um, but I really do think that that reading either qualitative methodologies or qualitative papers gives you a real sense of of that social, psychological interaction which occurs in clinical practice. 
Next question. With regard to clinical practice, what have you changed your mind about since starting your podcast? Hmm, good question. Tricky because all the episodes seem to feed and support my biases, but I'm not sure if anything I've changed my mind per se. I think I've got a much broader perspective now on clinical practice, on the richness of patient stories and narratives. And I have a slightly greater understanding of, of the subjectivity of clinical practice and the continued kind of value of focusing on the relationship with the individual, which I, I always have, but I think what's clear to me speaking to the people that I have spoken to, not just in the course health series, but pretty much all the way through, is the focus on the individual person and really getting a understanding of their story by providing a space for them to articulate that story and to be part of that story and guiding them through it. So, so no, I don't think I've changed my mind on anything. I think I've just got a, a stronger, a, a stronger appreciation for the role that the patient has in that clinical interaction. There are some things which were, which are, which were genuinely new to me. In, for example, and I'll probably explore this a bit in the qualitative series, that the idea that qualitative research has something to say about causation and causal evidence, and the traditional view of qualitative work is that it provides context and insight and an understanding about psychosocial circumstances, if you like. But most qualitative researchers, because of the association of causation with positivism, they would run a mile to, to make suggestions that their work is predictive or or offers or, or contributes to a causal story. But taking a disposition view and looking at causation in the single case flips that around. So that was really quite new to me and I'm quite keen to pursue that in some of these qualitative episodes coming up. Next question. What is your best resource for explaining chronic or persistent pain in the absence of pathology from a BPS perspective to patients? I think there's there's a few great resources out now and I've reasonably frequently suggest to patients that they listen to the Back Pain podcast, which is a wonderful resource you know, geared towards patients. And particularly if it's in podcast form, it's all the more accessible rather than just streaming through text on a website. Um, but also, you know, with that said, I still utilize the painedcom website, which I know I think has been archived, but it's still still up up there with their great information and infographics, which is really accessible to patients. So and there's also those, those little YouTube videos. There's obviously Tame the Beast, uh, which is geared towards persistent pain and chronic pain. And also that short, um, I forgot what it was, that kind of sketchy video on YouTube by the Australian Pain Association or something like that, where there's there, there's that, what is that kind of doodle thing when people are writing on a whiteboard um, pictures to illustrate the the speak over. So those sorts of resources have been really helpful to patients. And I think, you know, the challenge with patients with persistent pain, but also people with just, you know, acute non-specific you know, muscular pain is to get reliable 
information that if you punch in you know back pain into Google, you get a stream of inaccurate, potentially harmful information. So I think more so than ever, having a bit of a resource or list of resources that you can offer to patients for them to to obtain some information and ultimately their views around their their problem, their situation is a really important role to play. And you, you can you can set it a little bit like homework. So I sometimes say I might pick out a couple of episodes which might be salient to the to the particular patient and say, how about you have a bit of a listen to or have a read of this and we can have a bit of a chat about it next time. How does that sound? And invite them to to you know to share some of their views on it. And I'm not talking about research papers, but this is patient facing information. And we can spend five minutes in the next session just talking about how what they made of that piece of information, relating it, if we can, to their particular situation. That can be really helpful for patients to get some perspective on their situation and what to do about it. Next question. How would you use language differently with children? Do you have any favourite metaphors or stories for children? Um, so no, I haven't. And I'm... I've got to say I'm not someone that sees lots of children in my clinical practice. I'm not sure if that's intentional or or it's just uh, the kind of demographic that I that my clinic draws from. But I think depending on the age of the child, I will obviously attune my 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 communication strategies to that individual. But certainly it's got to be simple, understandable, super basic, but obviously underpinned by some of the notions of pain neuroscience and trying to reduce the threat associated with with pain whilst at the same time you know validating how unpleasant that you know sore knee or sore ankle might be i think possibly my attention might be turned more towards the parents and the family or caregivers now this as this will influence the child's own framing and views towards pain, not just in that moment or that, with that particular injury or situation, but future episodes. And I spoke about this in episode 19 with Melanie Knoll, and she has some really interesting and, use, and useful strategies for communicating to children and parents in pain. And the episode we talked about making memories and how we can shape children's future pain experiences. So I probably refer you back to that podcast, which was episode 19. Next question. Can I ask how the core cell series has influenced the way that you practice? And do you use the vector model regularly as a result or any other adaptions that you've made because of dispositionism? Um, that's a really good question. So the core cell theory did have a profound effect on me. I was immersed in the theory and practice associated with dispositionism. Um, I'm yet to use the vector model regularly. I think it's a really good, it, it would seem like it's a really good way to, for both the patient and the clinician to contribute to a visual cause understanding of what's going on. I think, as I said earlier, the adaptions that I've made, again, are just to be much more attuned or certainly not for a moment rush that story construction that really spending time on the individual's individual context and circumstances and not rushing over them to get to the examination or the clinical aspect of things or the hands-on aspect of things, but just recognize the value in pursuing 
a rich and deep causal story which will shape both my treatment decision making but also have some understanding about why this person is where they are. And next question, who's your favourite philosopher and why? Do you use a particular philosophical framework in your clinical practice? So no, I don't use or apply a particular framework, at least not that I'm aware of. I think my theory-practice relationship is that rather than seeing theories as separate from practice, is that through learning from and reflecting on practice, I kind of developed my own personal theories of practice, which are influenced by a range of different frameworks, which I hope don't contradict each other. So these theories in use are not applied in a rigid, inflexible way, but are flexible based on the individual circumstances of the of the situation. So given the creativity required in complex clinical practice, adhering strictly to any framework can be a little bit troublesome. So I draw on a range of different frameworks to get some theoretical leverage on the realities of my clinical practice. So for example, I might be influenced by or be inspired by symbolic interactionism, which is a sociological theory around how people act towards things based on the meanings that they have for those things. And that meaning is derived from the social interaction that we have with each other. And that meaning is modified through an interpretive process. And so I'm not you know, going into a clinical situation with this theory at the forefront of my, my tongue or my practice. But I think by, by having this theoretical framework you can begin to see practice and patience and information in a certain way, or you can begin to construct practice in such a way that you can navigate some of those complexities. So I suppose it's akin to a kind of mixed martial artists that they don't adhere necessarily to a single philosophy, but are able to integrate different theories which are coherent, compatible, and consistent with each other. Finally, do you think it's better to specialise in a field, e.g. headaches, shoulder pain or back pain, than, say, be a general clinician as a new graduate? I think certainly there's value in being exposed to a whole range of different patient presentations and types, certainly early on in your career, to get that fluency in practice and be able to navigate that clinical environment, be exposed to different problems or complex problems or complex patients. So I think certainly narrowing your practice early on in your career, you might lose some of that richness and diversity, which is necessary in building those attributes, which are crucial to being uh, an expert, and I'm using air quotes here, or developing expertise. So probably not narrowing too early, I think there's, you know, I can also understand the value in later on in your career to begin to narrow and to focus in on conditions or to focus in on issues such as back pain or headaches, as long as you don't lose the broader context of those diagnostic constructs that you know, headaches will not just be about the head, for example, 
or back pain, not just about the back, that you're able to appreciate the range of different aspects and properties and features which might be important when wanting to understand the person that's embodying these diagnostic constructs. So thanks for listening and make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast player. I've got some excellent episodes coming up with Peter Stilwell and Sabrina Connicks on their recent paper on affordances and inactivism. And also I'll be speaking with Philip Merrick, who's a physiotherapist and is involved in the Environmental Physiotherapy Association. And we'll be speaking about his autoethnographic work with his critique of physiotherapy and his reconceptualization of physiotherapy. So some great conversations are coming up and I'll speak to you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.